with me, Father in heaven. You, your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is the worthy one. And we pray now that you would help us to learn of him. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would reveal Christ to us in a way that brings him glory. And in a way that blesses us. So that in that blessing, we can continue to glorify him. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Let me ask you please to turn to Hebrews in chapter 10. Hebrews in chapter 10. I want to read just verses 26 to 31. Hebrews in chapter 10, please. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Hear the word of God. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries of anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, every time I pick up a new book of the Bible to preach uh, through, there are a number of difficulties that enter my mind. That could come upon me in the context of that study. Um, sometimes there are translations issues in passages. Um, not that I'm a translator per se, but sometimes there are issues of translation that make a passage uh, difficult. Sometimes there's difficulties in theology. I read a passage and say, this doesn't fit what I learned in systematic theology class. I wonder how this really goes. Sometimes there are difficulties in meaning, quite frankly. Some passages are just beyond me. I read them and read them and study them and study them and go, I don't, I don't understand that. And those are the ones I skip, by the way, as I'm working through. You can just sort of notice that as I go through. Sometimes I admit it, sometimes I don't. But I skip those for your benefit, I suspect. Uh, sometimes there's meaning and applica- a difficulty in application. I, I may know what it means, but I wonder, how does this fit us? How does this really apply it? To us, sometimes there's difficulties in context. That is, when you take one particular passage and you read it in isolation of all the others, because I can't read the whole Bible to you every Sunday, though I'd like to. Um, uh, you take that one passage in isolation, it may uh, cause us to misunderstand really the author's point, because this is all we're seeing. It's, it's hard to be balanced when you read one particular passage or preach on one particular theme. If I preach on death, it may sound morbid. If I preach on sexuality, it might sound judgmental. If I speak on obedience, it might sound legalistic. If I speak on grace, it may sound lawless. And So it's difficult to, to kind of balance all of that out. And I must confess that when I began thinking about preaching through Hebrews, my very first insecure thought was, what about chapter 6 and 10? Because in chapter 6, there's just a couple of verses. We've been there and through them. And now we face this. I knew this was coming. Uh, uh, So I haven't rested as comfortably as you over the last number of months since we've been out of chapter 6. But still, I knew this was coming because this is one of those those difficult passages taken in isolation, taken all by itself. There are a number of things you wonder, what does he really mean? Why is he bringing this up 
Why is he bringing up here? What does it really mean to go on deliberately sinning after one has a knowledge of the truth? What, what does that really mean? And, and how could that possibly apply, apply to us? Is God really vengeful like this? Is, is, it really, is that really his nature, his character? Is that what I'm to understand about him? How do I know God like that? These kinds of questions arise. And just as we began getting comfortable with assurance for our own salvation, boop, now we come back to a passage like this. But if you're new to us, I just want you to understand that this wasn't my choice to preach. It's the next passage. I ended with verse 25 last week, and so now we're on to verse 26, so here we are. And we believe this passage to be as much God-breathed as every other passage in the Bible. So it's ours to take up and understand. But as we do that, let me set it in context. Let me set it first in the context of this whole message of Hebrews as this author is writing to this particular group of people who identifies as Hebrews, Jewish Christians, I trust. Remember that his purpose in writing, interestingly enough, after reading a passage like this, is to give them assurance. Give them assurance that they're accepted by God through faith in Jesus. Uh, Notice, remember back in chapter 6 and verse 11, he puts it like this. He says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In other words, what he wants for them is that that they have this full assurance of faith, full assurance of hope, as he puts it here, so that they'll be encouraged enough to continue to persevere. And that's his hope. And and he goes about providing this assurance in, in two ways, really. One, in a very expected way, and that is he tells us about Jesus. He says, since your hope is in him, let me tell you about him. If you know about him, then you'll have this full assurance of hope. You'll be able to persevere. Uh, and and that's, that's what he's after. Because there are some in the community that are drifting away from this profession of faith, this full assurance of hope. And he wants to grab them. And so he says, I want to tell you about Jesus. And so he does. He begins uh, by telling us who he is. For instance, in chapter 1, he says, long ago at many times and in many ways... God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So in a sense he's saying, listen to him, he's my Son, the very divine Son of God. And he's the one who created everything. He's the radiance of the glory of God. In other words, if you look at him, what comes out of him, what shines forth from him, is the very reflection of God, the perfect reflection of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. This is who he is. If you want to see God, see Jesus. If you want to know God, know Jesus. Uh, He says, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Uh, That's who he is. And then he goes on to say what he's done. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angel as the name he's inherited is is more excellent than theirs. He said, look, this is who he is. Trust him. And if you trust him, because he's the one who's the very son of God, and he's the one who's made purification for sins. So if you trust him, if you're in him, then you can have this full assurance of hope. And so the first way that he goes about giving them this assurance is by telling them, telling us about Jesus. The second way is to warn them what will happen if you don't. And he does that over and over. For instance, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention 
to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So he's saying, I'm telling you about Jesus. If you trust in him, then you know he's the one who's made purifications for sin, so you're accepted by God. Live on that. But if you don't, if you drift away, if you neglect this great salvation, there'll be no escape for you because he's the only escape from the wrath of God. And then in chapter 3 and verse 11, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He says, he says if, you, if, you, if you have an evil, unbelieving heart, if you become deceived by sin and trapped by it, then you see, you can't have hope. Because Christ is your only hope. Trust in Him. Don't disbelieve, but trust Him. Verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have failed to reach it. In other words, don't fail in this. Continue to believe. Continue to persevere. So throughout all of these warnings, he's telling us about Jesus. He's telling us about who he is, so that we'll have hope to trust in him. Then chapter 6, verse 4, he writes, For it's impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and, and uh, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come if they then fall away, since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. He's saying, listen, um, he, he writes this, not to the culture. He writes this to the church. And so he's speaking to people just like us. And he's speaking to people gathered together to worship God on the Sabbath, on Sunday, no doubt. And as they're hearing this read, he's saying, I want, I want you to, to understand that if you believe in Jesus, you're cleansed and accepted and all of that. But if you don't, in a sense he's saying, especially you, who know so much, you've heard it so many times, who've professed it. Especially you. If your heart becomes hard and you walk away, the great danger is that you get stuck there and never desire to return. And then the warning that we had today. Now he plays his hand that he's really after assurance because even after these very difficult warnings like this one in chapter 6, he tells them this, for instance, chapter 6, verse 9, he says... Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Say, oh, this is a warning, but, 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 but I still believe that you're with us. And even in chapter 10 and verse 39, the last verse of that chapter after this warning, he says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere and preserve their souls. So he's saying, and so he said, well, then why give these warnings? I mean, why such... Harsh warnings. When he wants to give us assurance, when he wants to make sure we continue to follow after him. And the answer to that question first is this, that these warnings are true. That is, this is these are true statements. That if one does not follow Jesus, that if one does not believe in Jesus, then one is lost. One is judged by God. So they're true statements. And you say, well, that's all right. He's saying a lot of true things. Why does he have to say those true statements here? Now the answer is that, I think, because he's testing the heart. 
Because the heart of one who desires to follow Jesus, the heart of one who is born again, when warned, if in sin, will repent. Think of King David. He was one who sinned grievously. But when warned by the prophet, he repented and was forgiven his sins. We warn all the time. We warn our children that if you don't get out of bed in the morning, that you'll never be able to hold a job. We, we uh, professors warn students all the time that if you don't study, you'll fail. Um, employers em- warn their employees that if you're not conscientious at your work, you won't be successful and you'll lose your job. Drill instructors warn recruits all the time that if you uh, uh, don't live according to regulations, then you'll be in big trouble. Uh, warnings test the heart. And you can tell the heart of a person once warned if they respond. And so he gives these warnings knowing, believing that those who are truly born again, those truly desire to follow after Christ, even though they're drifting away at the moment, will return. So he gives these warnings with the anticipation that once warned, drifters will undrift. Drifters would consciously return, you see, and repent. So he gives these warnings. So let's take this one up. Notice verse 26. He says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of truth, there, is no, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now this is very important, I think, for us to come to grips with what this little expression, go on sinning deliberately, means. Because, you see, it appears as if there's only two alternatives. There's either, on the one hand, a sacrifice for sins, or there's this fury of judgment, one of the two. And, of course, that's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus has died for our sins. If we trust in him, his sacrifice suffices. His sacrifice is sufficient. His sacrifice is effective to cover our sins, that we would be pardoned to pay the debt of our sins. And his righteousness covers so that We're accepted by God. That's on the one hand. But if we don't believe, we understand, then that sacrifice doesn't apply. And therefore, there is only judgment before God because God is a holy God. And to be moral, to be righteous, then he must judge that sin and that sin that's against him. And so, I don't know about you, but when I read this little expression, go on sinning deliberately, I get this really nasty, cold chill up my spine. Because that sounds like me. I mean, I've gone on sinning after converted to Christ. And I can't say that I sin mindlessly. I wish I could. I wish I could say it was just an accident. <laughs> Who knew? Um, but it's deliberate. You say, I, I'm smart enough. I've been around this stuff long enough. Trust the Spirit of God in me as well. That when I'm sinning, I know it. I mean, there's this sense this is wrong. And if I don't know at the time, perhaps I'm caught up into something. It doesn't take very long before I realize that's wrong. Plus, I have children, so someone normally tells me. But I don't think that's the point. I don't think the author is necessarily saying, oh, well, let me put it differently. I don't think he's saying that if one sins, then one is, has no sacrifice for sins available, no forgiveness of sins. Because really he's pointing to a person whose life is characterized by rebellion against God. One who goes on, continues on, sinning deliberately. 
against God. In the Old Testament, there was an expression called high-handed sins. You can read about it in Numbers chapter 15. We have time to go there. But the point was there was sacrifice for what the Old Testament prophets referred to as unintentional sins. Now, those weren't mindless sins or sins in a trance, but those are sins of people who really ultimately desired to follow after God. And so when they made their sacrifices, they were sincere in making sacrifices. They understood that, 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 that God was holy and that they were not. And when they sinned, that they could come to him by way of sincere sacrifice. And that God would accept the sacrifice rather than their own lives. But there were those who committed what were called high-handed sins. And that's a very descriptive uh, Expression, because it's a sin like this. You just raise your fist, raise your hand to God as if he doesn't matter, as if he doesn't mean anything, as if he isn't the sovereign, holy one who judges. And just live in defiance against him. And so that's his point. You'll notice as he moves on, he refers to these people as adversaries, adversaries of God. And so they're living in utter rebellion against him. They're people who, in a sense, by way of comparison, have set aside the law of Moses, that is, they, they say, you know, God's law really doesn't govern me. I don't need to obey him. I can obey myself. I can go on my own. In fact, this little expression, uh, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by those who, no, I'm sorry, in verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on evidence of two or three witnesses. That little expression comes from Deuteronomy chapter 17. And notice, if you have a chance, you're quick to turn there. In verse 2, Moses writes, If there is found among you, within any of your towns, that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun or moon, or any of the hosts of heaven which I've forbidden, and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently, and if it is true and certain that such an abomination is been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on evidence of one witness. You see, this is a person who set aside the law of Moses because he's an idolater. He said that what Moses has taught about God isn't true. There really is other gods, and I really can worship them. And in worshiping them, they really will help me. And in helping me, I'll be satisfied and blessed. And he says, there isn't any sacrifice for sins of high-handedness, of turning your back on God, of rebelling against him, of living a whole life in rebellion against him. And then notice how he goes on. He said, this very one is one who spurned the Son of God. He uses that expression, Son of God, no doubt to say, has denied the very fact that Jesus is the very Son of God. Denied the very fact that he's God in the flesh, God with us. When John writes his first epistle, epistle in First John in chapter 4, verse 2, he writes this, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit does not confess that Jesus is not from God. That is... If you spurn the very Son of God, it means he's not divine. He's not really the Son of God. This one who goes on sinning deliberately lives that way. This one also profanes the blood of the covenant by which he was 
sanctified. You see, it's the very blood of Christ that's to sanctify us, to cleanse us, to set us apart to be gods. And though this person, being in the community there of this church to whom this author of Hebrews writes, no doubt listening to this being read in the congregation, has made a profession of faith, maybe sitting right there, but in his own heart, he set aside that which is true about God. He doesn't believe really that Jesus is the divine Son of God to be followed, obeyed, trusted. And he therefore treats as common the very blood of Christ. You see, to deny the work of Christ, to deny what Christ has done, is to say that his blood, his life, is just like everybody else's. It's just common. And yet, that's the very blood by which we're cleansed. And not only that, he says, you outrage these folks. Outrage the spirit of grace. That is when the Holy Spirit comes and blesses. And you reject the blessing. And you reject ascribing the blessings to Christ. Then he's outraged. It's not a small thing. And therefore you fall under the very judgment of God because there's no sacrifice for sins then. Why wouldn't there be any sacrifice for sins then? Isn't the blood of Christ effective enough to cover all of our sins? Yes. For those who believe. For those who repent of their sins and turn to Him. Yes. But if you don't, no matter where you're sitting, no matter what your profession with your mouth is, no matter who you hang around with, whether it's Christians, if you really don't believe, if you don't trust in him, there are no sacrifices for sins. And the only other alternative, as he puts it here, is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries of God. Because, verse 30, we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, it's not always a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But it is if you're unrepentant. It is if you don't trust Christ. It is if you're standing in your own merit before him. Then it is a fearful thing to fall into his hands. Because there's no sacrifice for sins. You will pay. Because God is just. And that is true. So even trying to assure these people of their own salvation, he said, I want you to understand, though, that there's another side to this. That yes, if you believe, you're blessed and cleansed and all of that. But if you don't, and you say, I, I don't know about a vengeful God. That just doesn't sound right. I mean, I mean, I read the Old Testament. He sounds pretty vengeful. But in the New Testament, doesn't God become a Christian? Uh, and, uh, and doesn't he all of a sudden get gracious? And the answer is, well, no, he doesn't all of a sudden get anything. He's the same in the Old and the same in the New. And the New, there's one, in the Old Testament, yes, we do see the wrath of God played out in the lives of people. That was God's intent through Israel to show his judgment and his grace. There's wonderful grace and mercy in the Old Testament. In fact, the whole law is a law of grace. God shows his righteousness and holiness. He also shows his hatred towards sin. But then he says, come to me. I'll provide. I'll provide the sacrifice. Come, believe, trust. 
That's grace. That's mercy. He comes in the same way in the New Testament with Jesus. And we see it all in the cross. We see the righteousness of God there in his holiness and his hatred towards sin as he pours out his wrath upon Jesus. But we see his mercy and grace and his love because he pours it out on Jesus and not on us for those who believe. But you'd read through the New Testament and mark every time the wrath of God is mentioned and mark from the lips of Jesus every time he talks about judgment and hell. One of Jesus' most common phrases was to say, use the expression outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That was the, that was the stanza to many of his stories. Read Revelation 18, 19, 20. God doesn't suspend judgment. There will be. He suspends it in that sense. For those who believe. He pardons us. Accepts us. Forgives us. Now. I believe there's a very special application of this passage to us and even to our children. Now, to us, generally, as a church. The application, I believe, is this. The point of it all for us is this. That we know the truth. I don't think you can come to this church very long without hearing the gospel. And I don't say that in a bragging way. I just say that I know that because everything we do revolves around it. Uh, every program that we have, every class that we teach, every sermon that we preach, every place that we go, we want to make sure that the gospel is known. The gospel is out there. The truth about Christ is there. We really do, I hope, if you were asked the gospel, what is the gospel, could explain it, could share it, could lay it out. If you can't, you need to do that. But I think if you hang around us long enough, you'll catch a, a real good understanding of that. You'll understand that we do believe that we're sinners in the sight of God. And we don't have any hope except in his sovereign mercy. We do believe that there is judgment for sin. And we do believe that we're all sinners. We do believe, as I read in our call to worship this morning out of Ephesians chapter 2, that we all by nature are children of wrath. And that God isn't being mean in his judgment. He's being righteous. He's being right. He's being true to himself. He's being exactly the way he should be in hating sin and condemning sin. Sinners. We believe that. But we also believe that Jesus came and took the punishment for our sin upon himself. That's the cross. And when he took the punishment of sinners upon himself, the Father was satisfied with that sacrifice. And Jesus rose from the dead to declare that freedom and to declare that forgiveness so that all who would believe in him would have everlasting life, would be forgiven their sins. That's the gospel. We believe that. And so the point for us is this. If we don't live our lives around that, then we need to heed this warning. I must say, church, if you're having an affair if you're living in a relationship that's ungodly and you're doing that as if 
it doesn't matter. And there's no remorse. And you're not being led to repentance. You need to heed this warning. If you're being sexually abusive to your children, you need to heed this warning, no matter what you profess with your mouth. If you're physically abusing your spouse, if you're stealing money from your company, if you're living in such a way that completely denies the profession of your mouth concerning Christ, or if you're living in such a way that denies your very presence in a service of worship, you need to heed this warning. And if you find yourself this afternoon, I would hope quicker than that, but if you don't find yourself this afternoon repenting, you're in great danger. And then for our children, this is a very special application. And I say that because we baptize our children. Uh, I know there's controversy about baptizing infants. There was a little piece in yesterday's faith forum about baptism. By the way, the reason I never write in that is, number one, is because they don't give you enough space to really explain anything. You might suspect I would need more words. But secondly, I never want to be in a situation where I'm shown to be in disagreement with another Christian. In public, I don't mind in private. We can debate these issues in-house all the time. But I never want to be in the newspaper making a statement about baptism that another Christian may disagree with. Because if I ever do write in the newspaper for our culture, I don't want it to be on something that believers can disagree about. I want to be more, say something more important to the culture. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but if you ever say, why doesn't Bill ever do this? Is he just lazy? Well, probably. <laughs> but that's my rationale. I'm sticking to it. But we do baptize our children. We do that on the basis of how we understand covenant signs. When God credited faith to Abraham, I'm sorry, credited righteousness to Abraham by faith, and Abraham was saved, he gave him a sign of this covenant, and it was circumcision. And he was to be circumcised himself as a sign of righteousness that comes by faith, but also to give that sign to his eight-day-old sons. Now, obviously, circumcision didn't save his eight-day-old sons. Read through the Old Testament and you'll find many, un many circumcised men unsaved. But what it did was that it marked them out as part of the community, the covenant community of God, as people who would know the truth. Because even at that moment, they were given the mark of this covenant that would say, if you believe as Abraham believed, then you will be counted righteous. But if you don't, you'll be cut off. And there is no hope for you. And so the children of Abraham grew up different than the Canaanite children. They grew up under the covenant. They grew up learning. They grew up bearing the sign of the covenant. And for them, that was a great responsibility. They could never stand before God and say, well, I didn't know. And you see, when we baptize our children, it doesn't save them. But it marks them out as children of believers, as part of the visible church, as part of the visible covenant community 
of God. And through the course of their whole lives, they bear that sign. And the sign is this, that if you believe in Jesus, you'll be cleansed. If you do not believe, you'll be drowned, you'll be killed, you'll be, you'll perish. And so you see, for our children, if you're out there, you've been baptized as a child, you have no excuse. The mark of God is upon you. And a passage like this needs to be heeded and said, oh yes. And most especially for you. And then finally this, it it makes what we considered last Sunday even more significant. Verse 22 of Hebrews 10. Let us draw near with 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 a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Ah, you see, take a passage like that and you say, oh yes. What's going to keep me from going on sinning deliberately? What's going to keep me from doing, from being that person. Well, one of the great means of grace that God gives to us is each other. And he says, so keep hanging out with each other and keep encouraging each other with the word of God and keep encouraging each other by praying with and for each other so that your hope will be matured. It will grow, it will be strengthened. For all the while then you'll be drawing near to God. As he gives us this warning, and he says, in a sense, don't go there. Don't let that be true of you. So, well, how, how can I not? I'm just a guy. How can I not go there? He says, well, I've given you my spirit. I've given you my word. I've, I've, I've worked in you. But remember, one of the means is to continue to hang out with each other, to continue to encourage each other by the word of God and through prayer, together drawing near so that your hope will not die. Let's pray, Father. I pray for all of us that none of us will be found in this condition. And I pray for all of us that if any of us is drifting in this way, that this word would sink deep. And as you say, your word is like a two-edged sword, splits up everything in our insides in such a way to expose. So I pray that this word would expose in us any drifting, any neglecting of this great salvation, so that we would be a people to follow you, to honor you, to believe in you, to persevere in faith, to have hope that cannot be shaken. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, uh, I remind you of our Sunday school classes happening uh, in about 15 minutes. The response to the benediction is a dangerous one. It's this. I believe in Jesus. Amen. Now, it's dangerous in the sense that if you don't believe in Jesus, you're in danger. There's only a sacrifice for sins and judgment. There is no sacrifice for sins 
outside of Jesus. There's no receiving that outside of faith in Him. What we profess with our mouth, we're to believe in our heart. And God knows our hearts. So it's a glorious one if you believe. Because then you know there's sacrifice for sins. And you're cleansed and accepted by God. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now may the God of peace. You brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, I believe in Jesus. Amen.